My guest today is Ralph Smith, the Managing Director at the Campaign for Grade Level Reading, also known as GLR. He describes himself as a recovering law professor, and he joined the campaign in 2010 to build consensus and momentum around ensuring children are reading on grade level by the end of third grade. Ralph, it's great to have you in the CI offices, and welcome to the Early Link Podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. For someone unfamiliar with the Campaign for Grade Level Reading, how would you describe it, and what's your elevator pitch? The Campaign for Grade Level Reading uh, really seeks to mobilize civic leaders, public official, and a broad swath of local communities to raise awareness, increase understanding, and create a sense of urgency around the fact that a large number of children, especially children from low-income families, are having their futures compromised by the inability to read on grade level by the end of third grade. When a community puts a stake in the ground around that issue, we help them find solutions to three of the big challenges. One, too many children are not ready for school and start school too far behind to catch up. Too many children are missing too many days of school and therefore not getting the benefit of what school has to offer. And too many kids are lost and at risk during the summer and return to school in in September, farther behind than when they left in June. We think if communities can rally to solve those three problems, we can see a real change in the number and proportion of kids reading on grade level by the end of third grade. Before you joined GLR, you served in the Philadelphia School District as chief of staff and special counsel, and that was an experience that helped crystallize the connection between schools and classrooms and family life. Can you talk about how that experience prepped you for your work at GLR? Working with the school district leaves me with two propositions, both uh, important. Proposition number one, schools have to be held accountable to do better with the kids they have and not the ones they sometimes wish they had. And we've got to be persistent and insistent, consistent, and even truculent on that proposition. But the second proposition is equally important and that is that schools can't do it alone. So much of what happens in the classroom is determined and even predicted, but what happens outside the classroom, at home and in the communities. So if we're really gonna see a change in student outcomes, especially for low-income kids, we've got to figure out how to mobilize communities to take up the challenge of getting more kids ready for school, getting more kids to show up to school every day, and taking care of children so they don't experience some learning loss. So given that, tell me about the campaign as it stands today, working with many communities across the country at this point. What are some of the highlights and how have things evolved under your tenure? Well, the most important thing is that we are as surprised pleasantly surprised as anybody else because when we started the campaign, we first thought we would have 12 states and 24 communities, and then we thought we'd have 50 communities, and we were overwhelmed when we had 124, and now we're up to 340. And I admit 
that we were that we are surprised because when you say 340, it could sound like bragging. Uh, we didn't plan that. Uh, it happened, and it really helped us to see that this issue of getting young children to read is something that is broadly shared and deeply felt in rural America and urban America and suburban communities. Uh, it is red, blue, and purple, and we were not as prepared for that as we should have been. Well, what if we were to describe the campaign today? On one hand, it is a movement, a movement by a large number of people who understand that reading is a gateway skill and it is essential to, for success in school, success in life, and success as a participating citizen. Uh, and that movement uh, has legs all over the country. That movement has resulted in the second incarnation of the campaign, and that's a network, a network of communities who have resolved to take action. And in those communities, we see 3,900 community-based, civic, uh, faith-based organizations working with educators to figure out what they can do to move the needle on grade-level reading. And that, uh, as I said before, really has been the surprise. And perhaps the development that I'm most proud of, uh, and this is a third prong of the campaign, is the coalition, and I should say coalitions, plural, of local funders who have come together to support these organizations and these local campaigns. This is, in many respects, uh, the most promising of all developments because what it suggests is that those people who want to work on this issue can work in partnership with local funders rather than as supplicants to local funders. Can you tell me a little bit more about those funder relationships and what they look like on the ground? What are you, what are you seeing in the, in the philanthropic world that's really effective right now? Well, what we're seeing, one, uh, local foundations which were proud of being responsive, meaning that they reviewed whatever came over the transom, and now willing to be strategic and thus make some choices and set some priorities. Uh, foundations that were proud of making decisions year to year and now making multi-year decisions because they realize that we're not going to solve this problem within any particular year. And we're seeing foundations really do more than write a check. We're seeing these foundations come in, uh, exercise leadership, provide support. We've seen them use their convening power, their network power, use their access and influence. Uh, we've seen them lead campaigns and we've seen them support leadership of campaigns. And the range of, a t the range of participation seems boundless. In fact, we've sort of coined uh, 
a way of talking and thinking about this, and we call it more-than-money philanthropy. And that's something that really accurately describes the, the foundations. And, and when I say foundations, I really should be clearer that it's family foundations and community foundations and united ways and local donors. Uh, it's a real broad constellation of funders who are really behaving differently uh, in supporting and pushing and participating in these local campaigns. The concept of education equity then is a driver for, for GLR in my understanding of it. Efforts are focused on disadvantaged kids, low-income families, young people furthest from opportunity. Do you th- think about your work as a way to reduce inequities and if so, how does the concept of equity fit into the GLR narrative? You know, um, in a lot of cases, equity is a sort of a euphemism for dealing with poverty, especially intergenerational poverty. And when we launched the campaign, we were fairly explicit that the campaign has as its large purpose to serve as a disruptor of intergenerational poverty. And what we know and what we've learned from Bell Sawhill and Ron Haskins is there's a success sequence uh, associated with opportunity and with being able to escape intergenerational poverty. Uh, They say you've got to be able to graduate from high school, delay pregnancy and parenting until you're married or 25 years or older, and get and keep a job. Well, whatever we think about the last two, for most low-income kids, it is the first that's the hurdle. They're not graduating from high school. And what we know is we can predict that those kids won't graduate from high school as early as fourth grade because they are not prepared to handle the work in fourth grade because they can't read at grade level at the end of third grade. So we saw third grade reading as an inflection point. We've got to get kids reading at third grade so they can have the early school success that will predict the later school success and graduation. So I think that the campaign is very grounded in the broader notion of equity to the extent that equity is addressing intergenerational poverty. And it's one big step. If we get kids reading at third grade level, we increase their prospects, early school success, and that sets up a sequence of successes that will virtually guarantee uh, that kids will escape intergenerational poverty. That that makes a lot of sense. And on, on some levels, when we talk about this in the field, it's almost like we focus on third grade proficiency, third grade reading levels. And in a way, we leave behind the fact that we're really talking about literacy and starting early with literacy. Like it's a, it's a that concept is so foundational in, in what kids need to be successful in school. 
Well, you know, we went to reading to the terminology deliberately because a large swath of the people we're trying to reach see literacy as complicated, as unattainable, but everybody knows what reading is. And everybody thinks that and believes that young kids ought to read. And what's even more important is we all know that kids cannot teach themselves to read. So reading is a intentional act. It requires some level of relationship. It requires some involvement of adults or near, near peers. And that really becomes the springboard for an engagement with families, engagement with, 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 young, with young kids. And for us, it was far more important to get everybody on board than to get really uh, technical about literacy as being, you know, more embracing and the, uh, than than mere, mere reading. Right. Once folks are on board, they kind of embrace the larger issue. But what brings them on board is we agree that kids, young kids, should read. In working with communities across the country, you've talked about the concept of accountable advocacy, and I think that's important, especially for an organization like Children's Institute or other organizations that serve in that advocacy capacity. What does that mean to you? Let me um, think about that in terms of policy. If you're a corporation, you hire lobbyists. It is absolutely clear that that lobbyist is accountable to you because you're writing the check. This gets a little blurred in the social sector. And it gets especially blurred when the check is being written by somebody other than the ultimate client. And so it could becomes really easy for advocates in the social sector, especially advocates for low-income people, to pay more attention to the people who are writing the check, and that is the foundations and others, and less attention to the ultimate clients. So accountable advocacy is a kind of a self-discipline. It is a reminder to find opportunities and ways to make sure you're checking back with the ultimate client and trying to make sure that that advocacy agenda is something that they understand, is something that they would want, it's something that they could manage and it's something that would make a real difference in their lives. And without that as a discipline, it becomes far too easy for advocates to go off reading the research, looking at the evaluations, and paying attention to the source of the check and the people who are often least heard from least involved in shaping the policy agenda are the people who are going to be most affected by it. So accountable advocacy is a way of turning the tables and ask whether we are actually engaging and listening and working with the folks who are most effective, most affected by what we plan to do. 
Would you say that there is an emerging shift within the funder community to be more attentive to the needs of communities and to the process of having a more community-based, community-inclusive process for how, how decisions get made? I, I would be reluctant to embrace that fully. I don't see that change in the funder community writ large. I think United Way has been there for some time and is getting better at it. I think there are community foundations who were there. And what I see more and more local funders uh, getting there because as they get deeply engaged in the communities in which they work and that are the places at which they invest, they find that building relationships and listening um, to the folks who live, work, worship, raise their kids in those communities makes a lot of sense. Quite frankly, I don't see that as a real trend or priority with respect to national foundations. I think national foundations are where they've been for a while, and what we see are exceptions and not the rule. Looking at the state of affairs in Oregon today, how would you describe the GLF, GLR efforts on the ground uh, in our own backyard? There are two parts to that question. One, Oregon is a state of such promise, but also a state that chronically underperforms. And so that's part of the disappointment. Uh, some of the best ideas uh, will start in Oregon, and the rest of us will follow and wish that Oregon had actually followed its own <laughs> advice. Um, so I, as a person who cares a lot about Oregon, uh, I always point out that Oregon has promised but underperforms. Uh, with respect to GLR, um, both Eugene and Wallawa are standouts in the campaign for grade level reading. I just wish that rather than having just a couple, that that was more statewide because we do have states where we have a larger proportion of the population and a larger number of communities. And Oregon should be one of those states, and it is not. Can you give an example of one of those states or a couple of those states where there's some work going on that we should be aware of? I think Arizona, Iowa. Arkansas, Georgia, Florida, and there but there's there's several others. And you know, I should not be able to name ten states <laughs> and not have Oregon on that list. Sure. And unfortunately that's where we are today. What is it in in those states that you're seeing? Is it just that more communities in, are involved or why why are they experiencing more success? Uh, it differs from state to state. I think in Iowa you're staying a state that's coming to grips with the demographic change. Iowa is beginning to look more like the rest of the nation, and they are fierce about wanting to hold on to the success that they remember from 20 years ago. And community after community uh, has stepped up uh, to figure out local solutions to that challenge. 
in Georgia, you have a governor and a first lady who have really jointly taken up the challenge and provided a level of leadership that has surprised virtually everyone. Uh, you had a health secretary uh, who was now head of the CDC, who understood pretty early that this was not just about reading. It meant that kids had to be healthy for them to be ready, and who came on to the campaign and made it something that was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. um, you've got Arkansas, where you have the major foundation in the state, uh, taking up this issue and providing steady and steadfast leadership from the very beginning and working with successive governors to ensure continuity. You have Florida where this work began under Governor Bush and has continued uh, under his successors and we're deeply ingrained in the state that we ought to do something and do better for young kids and People will fight and argue about it, but you have the leadership coming from people like David Lawrence in the community, as well as public officials and uh, funder, funders. So it's, there's no single uh, solution in the state, but what we will say is the success factors, when you look at states and communities, you say, is there a shared sense of ownership? Is there shared accountability for outcomes? Is there a willingness to look at the data? Is there a willingness to prioritize low-income kids? Is there leadership? And is there stewardship? Uh, does someone or does some group see themselves as having responsibility for this over the long run? And where we see those factors, we're seeing uh, more and more success. You've got a great quote uh, that I'm going to read that's a good reminder that we can each take meaningful action. And the quote is, what crystallizes the moral imperative to act is the awareness and belief that acting can make a difference. So how can people get involved? You know, I've got to insist on clarifying the record here because I get a lot of credit for that quote. <laughs> In fact, uh, when we were doing some fact checking a few years ago, we went to Google and I'm given credit for that quote. The fact of the matter is there's some Jesuit someplace that is laughing because <laughs> that Jesuit says something I said with that guy, <laughs> and it's probably a surprise. Uh, I went to Loyola Marymount, okay, and this notion is very deeply embedded in Jesuit ed Jesuit education, sure. and that's who we think we are. Those of us who are products of Jesuit education, and the good thing about big problems is that you don't have to go very far to figure out what to do. You know, it's possible. It's, there are some of us who can volunteer to be a tutor. Uh, there are some of us who could vote uh, for supportive policies. But virtually all of us, if we look at what we do every day, can find a way to reach out and support a family, support a kid, support a teacher, 
uh, create a, a culture in the community where doing the right thing for kids is something to be embraced. We can create high five moments for parents who take their kids to the doctor, even when it means uh, for low wage parents, there's a financial cost uh, to that in terms of missed work. We can uh, find a way to lift up parents who meet the challenge of getting their kids to school every day. We all could figure out how we get more kids covered um, during the summer. An example of the librarians, where librarians of all people are embracing this notion of lunch at the library. <laughs> you know, I, I am the nephew of my favorite aunt who was a librarian, and she could not decide whether chewing gum in the library was a venal or even more important sin. Uh, and the notion that 40 years later that librarians would be sponsoring lunch at the library during the summer is something that most of us could not have imagined. But what has happened is librarians can see what they have as space, what they have as an opportunity, and they, they're, they're acting on it. So. I don't have a list of things we could do. My sense is look around where you are, figure out what is it is that you can do, and just go ahead and do it because it can make a difference. That sounds great, and um, I'm glad we have set the record straight on the quote. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I need to do that because there is a Jesuit someplace who is just enjoying this particular moment. All right. Well, uh, great speaking with you today, Ralph. Uh, thanks for joining me. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. This is Rafael Otto bringing you the Early Link Podcast. Children's Institute is working to ensure a strong beginning for Oregon's children. Learn more at childinst.org.